Hey, everybody, you're listening to Driving a Man with Jim Campanis Jr. and Eric Lindenberg, a show that we, uh, Eric and I, conceived of because we would call each other and talk baseball. So we said, hey, let's do the same thing, but add a guest to it. So here we are on my work conference line, and we're waiting for our guest today uh, to come on board. First of all, Eric, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Campy. Doing great. Uh, glad the summer's almost over here in Phoenix. So, uh, Is it almost over? It's only It's only September. Yeah, I know. I, well, <laughs> down to 101 today, which is a big improvement. Oh, beautiful! So, by the way, it's it's 90. It was 95 in uh, L.A. So, uh, we must oh, wow. be uh, shift, we must be shifting with you guys. We'll we'll take on the summer while you, you guys go and play golf or something. How's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Eric, today we have an author. You know, as, as as you know, I wrote that Born into Baseball book on accident, uh, but this guy writes books on purpose, um, and he's written several, I believe. And I want you to give us a quick background on our guest today. He's going to be calling in a few minutes. Yeah, we have Ian Kahanowitz joining us today. And he's, uh, as you said, he's written a few books. He has uh, a couple of websites. He's got a blog. We'll ask him about uh, those things, too. But in particular, the, uh, the book he has out right now, Baseball Gods in Scandal, Ty Cobb, Chris Speaker, and the Dutch Leonard Affair. Now, I know a lot of people are familiar with the 1919 World Series fix with the White Sox, but uh, actually, this was this story in itself was part of that whole thing, and Ian's going to explain it to us, but uh, there are really some twists and turns in the whole story, like uh, Smokey Joe Wood. If a lot of people don't know his name, you'll hear about it. Smokey Joe Wood was a great pitcher for many years, but he kind of uh, took the fall so that Ty Cobb and Chris Speaker wouldn't be implicated in this scandal. I will have Ian explain that to us. But it's really quite interesting. Story, and I, yeah, it opened a lot of people's eyes. Eric, we need to have a cool 1920s name for you. Smoking Eric Lindenberg. Or, <laughs> or. Eric the Dutchman Lindenberg. No, the Englishman Lindenberg. There we go. The Englishman. I am happy. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, now we, yeah, this, One of our listeners, Jason Himmelstein, comes up with the greatest nickname. So, I'll toss it out to him. It's Jason, okay, I know you're going to be listening, so come up with a name for me. We do. We need to get a. We need to get you a cool 1920s, 1930s era name. The Babe. You know, I mean, <laughs> they, they were the best at that. You know. Yeah, they so, were. Uh, so yeah, though that, that's a lot of fun. But I yeah, mean, so uh, like I know Dutch, Dutch Leonard, Smokey Joe Wood. Exactly right, and and you know, uh, Dizzy and Dazzy Vance. I think they were more in the 40s. I don't even know if that was their real name, or they were just brothers, and they they called them. I don't. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that, that's always the fun. Uh, I think right now we got a, a good name, I think an appropriate name for a pitcher in the big leagues, um, Homer Bailey, who has Homer been given up quite a few homers, quite a few that's homers right. the last uh, several years. So Yeah, and he's also thrown a couple no-hitters. So. Well, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he's one of those guys that he sort of fell apart, and uh, like Verlander did he went with, you know, a couple years there at the end with uh, Detroit. Uh, yeah. Everybody figured he was washed up, and, well, the guy just threw a no-hitter at 36 recently, and um, clearly, long, he, yeah. hey, clearly he's got a few more, a little bit more gas in the tank. So we'll see if uh, 1920s-era nicknamed uh, Homer Bailey has a similar uh, similar output. But um, no, this will be interesting. And by the way, uh, Ian and I, and I, I, I've met him and talked to him, in the, well, I've not met him in person, but I've talked to him in the past. Uh, but coincidentally, our, uh, we have the same uh, book publisher, Summer Game Book. Oh. So... Yeah, just a little cool. small, and, and and Summer Game Books only publishes baseball books, and uh, the guy who uh, runs that little that little you know publishing firm 
uh, he actually works for a major publisher as a, as an editor. Um, so, you know, I believe he's, he's a pretty good, um, judge of, of topics and talents for baseball. So I'm sure, uh, and that, that was one of the reasons that I was able to get my book published by them. But I think I just yeah. heard the ding, just heard the ding, yes, Eric. Sir. I think we got our, our guest here, Ian, how you doing? This is Jim Campanis Jr. And we got Eric Lindenberg on here. Hey, yeah, how, how you doing, doing guys? What's going on? Good, good, good. Yeah, we're just, uh, in case you didn't know, our show is called Driving Them In, and that's because I'm driving home from work in L.A. traffic, which takes an hour or so. So this is how Eric and I talk baseball and with our friends, and we, we kill a little time, and uh, we've had some pretty interesting guests on. I think this is uh, show number 16. Uh, right. We've had every, everything on from, you know, Major League All-Stars to um, uh, and, uh, Hall of Fame uh, coaches, and, and, and uh, we've had even a first woman who played pro baseball, and We've had an author on, and now we have another author on here. So, Eric, why don't you give us a quick background on our guest today? Yeah, Ian uh, has written a few books, and Ian, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to tell us towards the end of the show, we're going to ask you how people can get a hold of you and see your work. But in particular, the one you have out right now, uh, Baseball Gods and, Scan- and Scandal, uh, this is quite a story. And a lot of people who are not aware of it, I know everybody, everybody who listens to our show is aware of the 1919 Black Sox scandal, it's called. But there was another scandal that same year that kind of ties together, doesn't it, Ian? It does. And the thing is, is that it involves Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, you know, two of the most prolific, uh, you know, players in the game before Ruth came along. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such an amazing story. And, and I was very surprised. It was never, ever, ever told at the length that I was able to tell it at. It was always a chapter. There was always a few pages. And I'm going to tell both of you, uh, Eric and Jim, that this was the biggest scandal of the 1920s. It was bigger than uh, the White Sox or the Black Sox scandal. uh, Because when you put it into perspective, you had two major stars and you had collusion amongst all the owners in the American League and the American League president and the commissioner not to tell the public about this. It wasn't just eight players who threw a World Series. We're talking all of baseball, including writers Fred Lieb, um, Jay Taylor Spink. Um, all these guys knew about what was going on, but none of them leaked it to the press. until. Well, let me ask you this, Ian. Um... I was thinking about this as I was reading uh, your story. It occurred to me that this kind of thing happened today. Oh, my gosh. Uh, this would be huge headline news on the front pages. But let's just take a couple of names of today's players. Let's say it was uh, Bryce Harper and Justin Verlander did this kind of thing. It would be enormous. Now, how was it that it got covered up? And how was it that oh, – give me some background. How, what really happened? Well, this is what happened. But what we don't know is is what really happened, because I'll tell you, it's so complex, you know, because you, cause it's a bunch of flashbacks and flash forwards. But let me give you, let me set up what happened. On September 25th, 1919, at Navens Field in Detroit, um, you had Dutch Leonard, you had Ty Cobb, you had Tris Beaker, and you had Smokey Joe Wood get together under the bleachers. And at the time... Cleveland clinched second place. 
the White Sox, of course, would clinch first and go on to throw the World Series a, a week later the series would start. And then there was a fight for third place. Now, in those days, the first top three teams get paid money. The fourth place uh, team and anything after don't get paid. So, you know, the Tigers were battling the New York Yankees for third place at the time. And if they would make third place, every player would get $500. Now, again, we go back to 1919, players didn't make a lot of money. So the $500 extra would be really, really helpful to these guys because they got to pay bills. So all of them are underneath the, uh, the bleachers, and they all agree, hey, you know something? Cleveland's going to lay down. We're going to let the Tigers win because they're in a fight with the Yankees. And while we're at it, hey, let's make some money off the game. And so the accusation by Dutch Leonard seven years later was they all bet. Now, what happened seven years later to cause him to bring it up, to talk about it? What happened was, so things like that were not uncommon in the dead ball era, you know, easing up at the end of the season uh, when teams uh, that were in a pennant chase uh, you know, needed it. So, you know, teams like the White Sox who came back, all the Black Sox came back uh, in Landis's, uh office the same time as uh, Ty Cobb and Trispeaker because they all pitched in um, a certain amount of money and, and, and for them to throw games in 1917 so the White Sox could win. And then they repaid the favor in 1919. But what happened was Dutch Leonard... Um, he's a fascinating character. He was not well liked by his teammates. He was not well liked by the managers. Uh, he was not liked, but wasn't well liked by the owners. He does have the lowest ERA in the American League. If you look it up uh, from his 1914 season, which was unfortunately ruined at the end because he blew out his arm. Uh, so uh, even he said I could have had a better season, but. Again, you can't argue with a 0.96 ERA, I think it was. He was he was a fantastic picture. And um, the problem with Dutch was that he had a farm uh, in Fresno, California, um, and he made a lot of money off of it. So baseball was more or less a hobby to him. He wasn't working to pay the bills like everyone else was. So what happened was he fought with Navin, in uh, 1922, and he said, look, I'm not going to play the next two years, you know. Yeah, I, I, if I can't move anyone anywhere else because of the reserve clause, I'm not going to play. And he didn't. But he had a change of heart. They brought him back for the 24 and 25 season. And at the time, Ty Cobb was not only a player, but he was the Tiger manager. And him and Cobb really did not get along in the last few years. Again, Cobb was more of a micromanagement kind of style of a manager. Uh, You know, know, he irked the team. A lot of people complained to Navin, who owned the Tigers, that, you know, maybe we we need a change because Cobb is very hot-headed. Cobb is telling us what to do on every play. He had to have control. And Dutch... You know, he didn't like listening to the orders. He showed up when he wanted to. He came in out of shape. So what happened was, the story goes, Cobb wanted to run him out of the league. And he couldn't just fire him. He had to show, look, 
Dutch Leonard's not good anymore. He's old. He's wasted. And in one of those games against Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics, he kept Dutch Leonard out. He got shellacked for like 25 hits. That even Connie Mack, uh, you know, probably the greatest manager that ever lived, yelled across the field to the other dugout to, to say, hey, you know, Ty, take that poor boy out. You're torturing him. And, you know, Cobb laughed it off. So what happened was the season ended, uh, the Tigers were in sixth place, and uh, Cobb gives him his release. He's like, you know, get out of here. And Dutch still wanted to play. And he thought his good friends in Cleveland, Tris Speaker, who was the manager of the Cleveland Indians, who finished in second place uh, behind um, the, the uh, Yankees that year, um, he thought he might take him because, again, after all, he played with Tris Speaker on some of those uh, World Series championships in the teens. And he was good friends with Joe Wood, Smokey Joe Wood, who was converted to a pitcher, from a pitcher to an everyday player. Both of them were on Cleveland, but no one picked up Dutch. All right, so Dutch went back to his farm in 25, and he was really stewing because his spring training, he's not, he's not headed east, and he's really mad. He wanted to play, and he's really disappointed in Speaker and Wood, and he said, you know what? I got these letters from seven years ago. I'm going to go uh, blackmail these people, and he came east, and he came to look for uh, Ban Johnson and the American League president, and he went to his office, and Ban Johnson wouldn't see him. He's like, ah, he's probably huffing and puffing. He was not picked up. I don't have time for this. And so he took the train to Detroit to see his old boss, Frank Navin. And Navin, too, he's like, ah, oh, you're just disgruntled, you know. Uh, this is a business decision. But he said, look, I got these two letters that I'm going to show there's been funny business going on with your star player, your star manager, and a couple of other people. And that piqued Frank uh, Navin's um, interest. And, uh, you know, Dutch showed him the letters. And, um, you know, Navin was like, you know, something. It doesn't totally implicate him. But there's enough here, he thought, that maybe Ban Johnson should see it. But even with that, Johnson still didn't want to see it. Um, he spoke to the Washington Senators, um, who were in Chicago that night, um, I think by phone. Actually, he went to the hotel. He went back to Chicago, went to the hotel, and showed a couple of the Washington coaches the letters. And they called up Ben Johnson and said, look, you know, Dutch Leonard stuff, he's not just uh, blowing hot air. He really means it. He really has evidence. So before Ben Johnson even saw um, Dutch Leonard, he went to Cleveland to ask Speaker about it, and Speaker's like, no, nah, no, nah, this never happened. So he went back, he met with Dutch Leonard, Leonard produced the letters, Johnson said, this cannot be seen the light of day. Now, a little story about Ben Johnson. You know, most of people, Ben Johnson is dead to history. He probably is the most important figure in the early 20th century, before Landis became commissioner, uh, he was the strongest guy in baseball. Uh, he was pretty much the czar of baseball from... Well, you know, it's funny. Let me interrupt you. It's funny you say that because uh, most depictions of Bad Johnson today show him as kind of a buffoonish type of character, and uh, that really was not the case, was it? 
It wasn't the case. Ban Johnson, the reason why they showed Ban Johnson in a buffoonery light was because of his antics in the 1920s. Um, by that time, alcohol, diabetes, and other ailments um, had befallen him. He was the czar. He had the last word of anybody in the league. He was on this um, committee called the National Commission. That was the ruling body before Landis was crowned baseball's first commissioner in 1920. And Ben Johnson was the head of it, even though he was the AL president, and he shared the duties with the NL president, and there was a commission, there was a um, chairman, and that chairman was Augustus Herman, who uh, was also the president of the Cincinnati Reds, who won the 1919 World Series when uh, the White Sox threw it. Um, but the thing with Ben was, they always believed Herman was in uh, Ben Johnson's pocket. So when you needed a final decisive vote, Johnson would usually get his way because two out of three would vote, uh, and it would be a majority vote for Johnson. Now, Johnson was very powerful. He bought into the Western League uh, as president in 1893 uh, by the urging of his good friend Charles Comiskey again, owner of the White Sox, owner of the White Sox uh, in uh, 1919. And he urged Ben Johnson, who was a newspaper reporter in Cincinnati, uh, you might want to take a look. Uh, you know, the Western League had lost profits, but they're coming back on. And he did. He he became president. He cleaned up the Western League because, again, in the time of the 1890s to the turn of the century, you had gamblers, drunkards, rowdiness of baseball games. And Dan Johnson vowed that this minor league team that he took on, uh, we're not going to have any of that. And it worked. And it worked. They expanded. And it made tons of money. Johnson got some power, and by 1900, he's like, you know something? I think we're ready to challenge uh, the National League and become a major league. And he, what he did was he renamed the Western League the American League, which is the same American League you have today. And he said, you know something? If they don't recognize me, the National League, as a major player, as a major league, I'm going to move my teams into the same cities as the National League, and I'm going to raid the players from the National League. I'm going to get rid of the reserve clause, which means there won't be a cap on salary. Um, I will pay the the players more so, and I'll steal them for the National League. And that's what exactly what happened. Um, you always look at old baseball, and you see there was two Boston teams, the Boston Braves and the Boston Red Sox, or the Highlanders in New York and the Giants in New York, or the Philadelphia Athletics and the Philadelphia Phillies, or the St. Louis Cardinals and the St. Louis Browns, or the Chicago White Sox and the Chicago Cubs. The reason was is that Ben Johnson moved all these teams like from Toledo and Minnesota and stuff and went to challenge the National League uh, so that they can raid uh, and literally have a baseball war. And he won. The National League lost so many profits. I got all the statistics in my book. I don't know them off the top of the head, but they beat them out in attendance. Games were cleaner. 
There was no rowdiness of games. There was no throwing of games uh, as there was in the National League. And Ben Johnson won a very big victory. And he now became the czar because the two leagues pretty much merged into what's Major League Baseball today. And he became the czar. That's it. You know, I beat the National League. You know, there's peace in the way. And now we're going to build baseball from after this war. We're going to build it up. And they did. He became the most powerful man. And he, he wasn't the buffoon he was in the end. Um, he really, really, um, you know, was the true czar. He owned 51% of the stocks of every major American League team. Because in those days... It really did mean something to be the American League and National League, because if you remember when you were younger, you used to see the umpires. They would say AL, NL. They were really divided. That's right. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really divided. Uh, and so, you know, that's why we have the same problem today with the National League and the American League. Well, in 1973, the American League got the DH, and the National League said no, because back then, you were able to do it. There was presidents of the league today. I don't even think there's presidents of the American and National League. It's just a commissioner who runs all the stuff after 2000, after the umpires merged and, uh, you know, uh, Bud Selig just wanted total power without having to uh, confer with an American League or National League president. But that wasn't the case in 1903. And Ben Johnson expanded baseball. He got rid of crooks. Um, and if even, if even star players um, like um, Ty Cobb, uh, you know, he went on strike. Uh, he said, I'm not going to play. And the Detroit Tigers said, you know something? We agreed that Ty Cobb uh, went into the stand to fight that uh, heckler. And you know something? We're going to boycott. We're going to go on the first strike. You know, Ben Johnson, he said, you know what? You guys aren't going on strike. You're not going to defy me. I'm going to find you guys all $100 each, which was a lot for them, if you don't get your, you know, butts back on the field and stop playing. And they did. Right. And, you know, in, in the end, Ty Cobb came back because uh, Johnson had a change of heart because receipts were dropping. Again, Ty Cobb, you talked about the greatest player. And by 1912, he was in the league by about seven years, and he was hitting about 400. So he let him back in with a $50 fine, but he made a statement, Johnson. You know, he could be it could be Ty Cobb. It could be anyone. I'm the boss, and this is the way it's going to go. Wow. Well, that, that's pretty much total dominance right there. And, again, not at all uh, he's depicted today. So people are going to be, uh, you listeners, this is very enlightening, I know, because uh, this is something you never heard about Ben Johnson before. Now, how did that translate into the incident, that, uh, the centerpiece of your book? How did Ben Johnson find out about it? They, uh, it was uh, Dutch Leonard went to him, obviously. Right. Leonard went to him. What steps did they take at that point? Well, what happened was when he met with Dutch, you know, again, he was reduced to just being what was called the advisory council, which was the National League president, who was John Hadler, uh, who, who in himself is a very important figure in baseball. I don't know, not a lot of people um, know about John Heidler. Uh, he, um, you know, he was the one who started this thing with stats. 
he was a stat nut, you know, and because of him, we have all the stats we have uh, today because of John Heidler. And, uh, you know, and Ben Johnson were, were, was called the advisory committee. Landis was the, now the new czar, but these guys could advise him. And so what happened was, since this was an American League affair, and since this was, this thing happened in the American League, and when the event actually happened, uh, there was no Landis as commissioner. There was Ben Johnson. And so Dutch, you know, figured he'd seek him out. And he'd say, you know, well, you were president at this time, um, and this is what happened under your watch. And so Johnson interviewed him, and Dutch said, here are the two letters. And to Ben Johnson, the letters seemed enough evidence. It didn't seem compelling, but it was enough for him to say, you know what? Landis can never see these letters. I'll be admonished again. It was bad enough that he threw me out of the the, the throne of being the king of baseball. This will only bring scandal. How much do you want, Dutch? Just make it go away. And Dutch said, you know something? I want want $20,000. Those are the payments for the years of 22, 23, and now 26 this year, which I didn't play. And... Johnson authorized attorney uh, Kalela uh, to pay him, and he did. He authorized it? Wow. He, author- he authorized it, Johnson. Johnson got together with Navin, and they both agreed. We're going to keep Dutch Leonard, you know, his mouth shut, and we're going to pay him. And the American League took $20,000 out of their treasure chest. They paid Dutch, and he went back to California, and he gave him the letters. Now, I have the impression... Just from what I saw, that Spokey Joe Wood uh, was kind of, if not thrown under the bus, he took the fall somehow on this. Is that right, or did I read that wrong? Yep. Now, if you read the book, and I don't know if you did, what happened was this. Joe Wood wrote Dutch the letters, and Cobb did too. Um, both, of the, both of the letters were like, well, you know, did they bet on baseball? Is this even because um, West Fred West, who was the gatekeeper uh, of the whole, um, you know, Tiger Stadium back then, he attested first. All of them bet. And then he reneged to Landis, and he said, "No, no, they didn't all bet. You know, I was only on horses." So it was still, you know, did they bet? Did they didn't bet? Um, but uh, Joe Wood is the key person in all this. Um, There's a guy who was the best pitcher in the league. He still holds the Red Sox record of 34-5 and for 1912. Um, I cannot begin to tell you how important uh, Smokey Joe Wood is to history from what he saw not only with gamblers, but all the World Series he's won, um, you know, and then in an age where, you know, pitches are overused. I mean, they're talking about pitch count today. Uh, you're talking, you know, 100 pitches a game. These guys used to have about 400 innings and pitch double headers in the same game, in the same day. Yeah. And, and like most dead, dead ball pitches, Smokey Joe's arm you know, was blown out, and he made the transition from being a great pitcher to a really good utility everyday player. Uh, the guy hit 280, uh, hit 
something like about seven or eight home runs in his last year before he uh, accepted a job at the Yale baseball team, which he would manage for the next 21 years. Joe Wood was pivotal in the 1960s when he was an old man. He was in his 70s. And I don't know if you've read, but one of the best books on baseball was Lawrence Ridden's The Glory of Their Times. Yes. And Joe Wood gave interviews um, in 1963 in October and two years later in uh, 1965 in October. And with the tapes and with the transcripts, Wood said too much, okay? And no one ever published those unspoken transcripts until my book. Um, Professor Gerald Wood, who wrote the quintessential biography of Joe Wood, had to go to the Notre Dame files uh, in Indiana at South Bend to look at them. And he took notes on them. Um, there was rumors for years that they weren't even around, that Ritter had uh, destroyed him as he promised Joe Wood. He would. He didn't. Before he was able, he was teetering. I was like, should I destroy it or shouldn't I destroy it? Um, what happened was he died, and his estate took, took those unpublished uh, letters, and they gave it to the Notre Dame uh, Hesburgh Libraries, where it was sitting there all the years. Gerald Wood analyzed it, put it in his book for about a paragraph. I called Notre Dame, and I said, I need those letters, and I need the um, the uh, transcript along with the tapes, and they gave it to me, all digitalized. Didn't have to move from my couch. How nice for you. Wow. And so I was able to listen to that, and I was able to see the transcripts. And I said, this is going to be primary source material where no one can, you know, you know how you get these hecklers, you write a book, oh, that's not true, and then they challenge you. Yes. No, one, no one can challenge me because this is what's from the horse's mouth. And if that wasn't enough, um, I was able to get um, his transcript and um, audio when he, when he interviewed with Eugene Murdoch, who wrote, the book, the only biography on Ben Johnson back in '82. This uh, was done in 1975. I got the, I got the transcript and the audio from there, and it only confirmed what he said ten years earlier about the uh, whole Tris Speaker and Ty Cobb affair. And to even make things more interesting, I was able to get a law student um, who went to the Chicago History Museum where all of Landis's files are kept. And box number 44 and 45 were never opened since he died, Landis. And that all contained the material, which is in my book, on the uh, scandal, which no one has ever seen since Landis died. So I hit the jackpot in my research. You sure did. Uh, uh, let me ask you this now. Uh, I want to get to you, Landis in just a minute. So let me go back to what you said when... Smokey Joe Wood was giving interviews in the 70s. He said he said too much, or he said the wrong things. What, what do you elaborate on that? Yeah. Okay. In my book, I give the complete transcripts uh, from those hearings that Landis had, um, and had Wood, Speaker, and Cobb. All of them were made to testify what actually happened. Dutch Leonard was supposed to come 
Uh, he was summoned by Landis's office. Landis had actually gone to California to meet um, Dutch on his farm uh, on October 29th. That's about a month and a half after he received all of Ben Johnson's files from the American League when Ben Johnson was made to turn it over to Landis uh, by the American League owners. Uh, so he went out there and he was conducting his own investigation. But Dutch never showed up to face his accusers, okay? And that was a big problem uh, for Landis because he didn't know whether to believe um, Dutch Leonard, even though the um, letters were produced. To Landis, the letters were not um, significant. It was not um, enough compelling evidence for him to convict um, the three alone on it. Now, again, he couldn't reach Smokey Joe Wood because Wood was out of Major League Baseball. So here you have Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, two of the greatest players ever. And, you know, this is hinging upon tarnishing their careers forever um, and literally um, putting baseball in a worse position it was back into the Black Sox scandal because these guys are stars. Those guys weren't. Uh, this would probably destroy baseball um, forever if these guys are convicted. Now, at the hearings back in 1926 on December 20th, Smokey Joe Wood testified. The Cobbin speaker didn't bet. Okay? I bet. I bet, okay, it's my fault, and they didn't bet. And they both agreed, Cobb and Speaker, that Wood was telling the truth, okay? And, he, and literally, he took the fall for um, Cobb and Speaker. We why still, would he do that? Why would he do that? Yes. Okay. When he spoke with Lawrence Ritter... Before the uh, glory of their times, he said in the unpublished transcripts, back then, Speaker, and his nickname was Spoke, or the Grey Eagle, um, because every time Speaker got a hit, they would say Speaker Spoke. So he says to rid of this, Spoke and I would go to hell and back for one another. At the time of the hearings, I was at Yale, okay? Landis could not touch me at Yale. He could not sanction me. His office was not authorized to do any sanctioning of me. And I needed to save my buddy, Trish Speaker, and the greatest player ever, Ty Cobb. And so I told him, it was me. I did it. These two didn't. And that's why he did it. That's quite a... What an act of self-sacrifice to those guys, uh, you know. Now, the thing, the thing that most people don't know was this. Wood, 40 years later, now has a different story. Landis is dead. Ben Johnson died in 1931. Speaker died in 61, so it was a few years before 
um, and his autobiography came out by um, Stomp Al Stomp, and we'll get to that in a second. And Speaker died in 58, so now they're all dead except Smokey Joe Wood. And in the first interview, Ritter asks Joe Wood, well, you know, Ty Cobb's biography came out, and he said pretty much, you know, what he uh, wanted to say. And uh, Wood's like, well, he didn't say anything, and I'm not going to tell you uh, what happened because it stinks. You know, it's all, it, it smells awful. But he said, you know, and he goes away. But the curiosity of Ritter, he brings Joe Wood back in, 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 a, in a few more years, in, in 1965. And again, Joe Wood's about 75, 76 years old. And for some reason... Wood blabs it. And he even says it, if you read it in the back of my book, because I give it, he's like, you're not to tell anyone. I didn't even tell my own brother, Pete. Now, Pete's an interesting figure in Wood, because what happened was in 1912, during Game 6, um, Wood was going to pitch, and they were going to win the World Series against the Giants, and he told his friends and family to bet on the game. Uh, because he's won previously two um, games in the World Series. His record was 34-5. and five. They're ready to nail the uh, Giants into the coffin and win the 12th World Series, and all of a sudden he's told he can't pitch that day. Um, the owner of the um, Red Sox, um, he wanted to make more money. The way to make money in those days is to keep the games going. And so he's like, we can't win it now. You know, we're not going to make enough. So he put Buck O'Brien, who was a decent pitcher himself, but he wasn't as good as Wood. And, of course, the Red Sox lost that game. And then Wood would lose the next game. It would be shelled. And, you know, the series would go to eight games because one game was um, was um, called for darkness. So it was a tie. Um, and so it would go to an eighth game. Uh, and the Red Sox would just barely win the 1912 World Series. But Joe Wood had a penchant for gambling. He saw Hal Chase, who could have been the greatest first baseman ever in the history of the game, uh, but he was corrupt. He threw games. He, you know, he he associated with the underworld, and, and Joe Wood saw it. He saw all of that, including. Including, and this is what this is one of the reasons why Landis had a big decision to make. A lot of stuff came out um, it, when he interviewed Wood um, that wasn't uh, in the testimony, but Wood told told in the uh, Ritter in these in the uh, unpublished transcripts there were betting going on in the 1920 World Series when my Cleveland Indians were playing the Brooklyn uh, Robins, and we bet on ourselves. But that's okay, because we weren't going to throw the game. We bet on ourselves. Everyone was doing it. You know, we, everyone, uh, you know. And in addition to that, Eddie Shikati, before the whole um, Black Sox stuff uh, came out, told us, we're not going to win it, you know. We're not going to win. We're going to lay down for you. Because you laid down, you know, for us during that 1919 thing, uh, even though it didn't matter the game. Yeah, you lay down, Woody. We're going to do you a favor also. And Landis saw that there was more going on uh, than ever before. 
But the big thing with Wood, getting back to that, I mean, it's so complex that I had to go on tangents here so I could make you understand what's going on. And he said this, okay? You cannot tell anyone what I'm going to tell you, but this is what happened, okay? I took the fall for them. I didn't really bet. I told Landis that so that he couldn't throw Cobb and Spoke out of the... um, out of the game, the game would literally be destroyed if if he did do that because Cobb and Speaker had material in a, in a Cleveland bank that if they were to lose and to get thrown out of baseball, they would ruin baseball with this information. Okay, not only that, but there's been gambling going on ever since you became commissioner, and we got the stories on that. Okay, and if you dare and throw. <clears throat> Speaker and Cobb out, that stuff's going to come out. Your squeaky clean image won't be squeaky clean anymore. In addition, there's another league that's going to be coming up, okay? And if you do throw them out, out, they're going to start this new league, and everyone's going to jump from the Major League Baseball. You're going to have no attendance records. Your, your record as commissioner will be wrecked. The Black Sox scandal, they're going to be redeemed uh, because they're coming back to your court for the Risberg. Uh, Gandal, um, you know, hearings, which they said, hey, you know, that Ty Cobb speaker thing, that was a pica bet. There's more stuff going on. So Landis was in a pickle. And Wood said, I took the fall for speaker and Cobb. Okay, I said I, I gambled. You know, I didn't. I was just a banker. Speaker and Cobb bet. And I took the fall from them. And that was that. Uh, Mind-blowing stuff. Yes, it is. You mentioned uh, the cow biography by Al Stone. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Okay. Was, was this addressed at all? And also, how much of that Al Stone biography was true? Now, the thing is this. You really have to be careful when we speak about Al Stump. I'm sure... You know, you're both you're both old enough. You know, I'm going to be 50 next year. You guys are a little older than me. Um, Al Stump was the biographer of uh, Ty Cobb. He released uh, the Ty Cobb biography posthumously when Cobb died in '61. Right. The, pro- the problem was this. Okay. The problem was this. He fabricated a lot of the stuff in there. Said he was a racist. Um, said that bellhop in the hotel who we had an argument with was black. That proved not to be true. Um, I looked at the records. Charles Learson, who wrote Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, a few years ago, he looked at the records. The guy was white. Okay? Then we had the whole um, thing with the, with his father. Okay? Um, Stump you know, sensationalized that uh, story, you know. Um, He said that the father was blown away with a shotgun by the mother. Yeah, but that wasn't true. It was a pistol. Um, You know, Charles Learson and myself got the actual court materials and the transcript, and it said it was a pistol. It was not a, a shotgun. In addition, he said that Cobb raped a girl. That was in the movie with uh, Tommy Lee Jones. That was a total fabrication. Okay. Well, and you mentioned that movie with Tommy Lee Jones. One of the problems, one of the big problems, it was that that movie came out, and people 
who weren't alive then, even people our age, uh, Jim and Ian and myself, see that movie and tend to think it's based on reality. And that's the story they now believe. And uh, boy, it's a terrible disservice to Colin Smith. The problem is, the problem was this. I couldn't get to Al Stump. Al Stump died um, before... You know, I got into this baseball thing in the, in 2015 as a podcaster like you guys. Jimmy's been on my show a few times. Right. Um, <clears throat> but this is what happened. Stump released that autobiography. And then he released a biography of his own 30 years later, right before the movie came out, with fur- further fabrications of it. And, you know, he made Cobb into this monster which it really wasn't. It wasn't the greatest of all guys, but you had to be hard in those days to play baseball. I mean, That's you, know, right. you know, Jimmy's a catcher. He'll tell you the stories of getting clunked, uh, you know, thrown at the plate or the jabbing that goes on between batter and catcher, trying to intimidate them and all this. Um, that was a hard game that uh, these guys played. He'd never sharpened his spikes it was and all this is news to me. This is all news to me because I've I have been brainwashed by baseball, I guess writers to uh, understand that Ty Cobb was not apparently he was not the son of a bitch that he's been portrayed. Is that you know everything that that even in the movie Field of Dreams, there's a reference about oh, he, he, you know Ty Cobb's the son of a bitch anyway, or you know you, you know like a like a guy that was yeah, uh, like by, by his so this is quite interesting. Well, the thing is, Cobb got a bad deal, okay? Learson's book, although it's very good and won all these awards, a lot of people didn't believe. You know, a lot of the a lot of the reviewers of Learson's book said it's revisionist history or he really sides with Cobb on a lot of things and he eschews a lot of things, and he does. But in my research... And I didn't need uh, Learson's book um, to hedge upon because I found my own I found my own um, research, uh, firsthand research in the in the Georgia out in the Georgia um, archives and all this. Even with the image Cobb had, Connie Mack made a mistake in 1909. What happened was. Cobb slid into third base, and home run Baker uh, was playing third. And we, growing up, always heard the stories, you know, Ty Cobb shopping his spikes, he purposely spiked somebody, all these people. And he accidentally, you know, slid into uh, home run Baker and spiked him. And Connie Mack was so furious, so furious with him that he thought, that, you know, he went on a tirade to the media saying Ty Cobb should be banned, he's a dirty player, and ba 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 ba, and this and that, and all that. If that's true, if if he really believed that in 1909, why, when the Dutch Leonard affair was over, would Connie Mack come back and offer Ty Cobb any amount of money he wanted to? to have to play for his Philadelphia Athletics, who were on the rise at the time. Why would that happen? Also, why would all of Georgia 
and all of Augusta have these rallies uh, when Ty Cobb was being accused of cheating, uh, of, of throwing the game during the Dutch line of the fair while Landis was, um, you know, deciding what to do. And, and in the interim, why would people be holding a Landis, a makeshift Landis doll with a noose around his head and all these people, uh, including politicians uh, and uh, people in the South, like judges, all say, we love you, Ty. We, 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 we know you didn't cheat. You know, you are the poster child uh, for everything that is good in baseball. You know, you have to question that. <laughs> you know, and, and Speaker, you know, oh, yeah. and Speaker. Well, look, Speaker was a gambler, okay? Speaker is one of the, he's one of the forgotten children of the dead ball era. How could you forget a guy who hit 345? And in a world before video cameras and uh, newsreels and all this, the guy played center field. He played behind second base because, again, this is the dead ball. They don't usually hit home runs. So when a ball was hit out there, he would be there before the ball would get there. He would run. He had the most put outs. He had the most triples, the most doubles. The guy was a superstar. And he was forgotten because he was overshadowed by three people. Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Joe Jackson. Jackson was a star before he got thrown out of uh, baseball. And Trispico, unfortunately, should have won more uh, MVP awards and batting averages. But when you hit 367 and Cobb's hitting 420, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, hey, you, yeah, what, what would what would you what would you pay? Um, you know, he, in 1916 when he was traded from Boston uh, to the um, Indians, he hit 388. You know, I mean, come on. But wow. he's he's lost to history uh, because times have changed because he was overshadowed by. Um, you know, Cobb and Joe Jackson and, of course, Babe Ruth. And he was also part of the Ku Klux Klan. And that was... Uh, he grew up? Yeah. yeah. And he grew up in Texas. And the Grand Wizard, when the, um, the Klan revival uh, happened in 1915 after the birth of a nation, um, if you were to get anywhere in the South, you had to be a member of the Klan. And I think Justice Hugo Black, who was President Roosevelt's uh, first uh, pick for the Supreme Court, um, he was part of the Klan. He was from Alabama. He became a judge. He was able to go to law school, um, even though he had no college education, but because he was a member of, a, of the Klan in the South, um, they helped you get by in things. And, and Speaker, his family, they were part of the Ku Klux Klan. I don't think they've ever gone to rallies and was, you know, a true kind of Klansman where they were rabid with, with, with burning crosses and stuff. But he had enough prejudice uh, in him to not talk to the Catholic players on the Red Sox and Indians uh, when he played and, and coached there. Um, he, there was deep divisions. It was a different world uh, back then. Definitely. You know, Marvin Miller, the union leader, uh, said many years later, we should get Speaker out of the Hall of Fame because he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I don't advocate for the Klan. 
I don't, um, you know, have anything good to say about the Klan. But if you were in the 1920s, you know, baseball was segregated. Um, people forget uh, before the collusion cases of the 1980s, uh, the owners for decades colluded against you know African Americans or any minorities playing in Major League Baseball, and Speaker and Cobb played during that period of purely white players. Um, so at the time, right, well, I'm certainly not uh, supporting or advocating them being in the club, but they certainly were not the oldest players in the club. And the matter is, the bottom line is like you said. I mean, it's like uh, to use a different example, Oscar Schindler was a member of the Nazi Party. But, you know, you look what he did. So, hey, you can paint everybody with that broad brush, but you have to look the context of the times, you said. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the clam is that powerful. And, um, you know, Speaker, hey, you know, that was part of his upbringing. He was a southerner. He was a rugged guy. He liked to hunt for his own food. He liked to camp on the outside. And he had southern roots. And, you know, the, he, he played ball for a living. And that was great, but he had ties to, um, you know, to the South. And when he was born, I think in 1888, I think uh, Speaker was born, it was only 20 years after uh, the Civil War ended. Um, You know, Ty Cobb was born in 1886, but the notions that Cobb was a racist was totally untrue. Whereas Speaker was racist, Cobb was no racist. His father was a very educated man, a professor, okay? And he came um, from abolitionist um, heritage, uh, Cobb, where even though his ancestors were in the South, they did not believe in slavery. And the archives prove it, um, where his grandfather um, did not want to um, enslave people, helped um, slaves to the north, um, you know, to get to the Underground Railroad. Uh, and, you know, Cobb never saw a black or white. In fact, you know, in fact, he visited Negro League uh, um, stadiums in the 1950s, and he, there's a picture, a very famous picture of him um, sitting there and showing um, the Milwaukee Braves his hitting style, and who's sitting there right in the front? Henry Aaron. I'll be darned. Wow. You know, so there's all this fabrication of Cobb um, was just that. And my book is a little different than Learson, where Learson advocates for Cobb and, you know, takes sides with Cobb. I just give the facts. And the facts were this. He was deeply hurt. He was a, I humanized Cobb in this, okay? I found enough things, uh, enough research, and enough books uh, and primary sources that Cobb was deeply hurt. He was deeply worried, um, you know, about this. It shows the human side of him and the way that people felt about him. Even Landis loved Cobb, okay? He, even he, he said, how can I get rid of Cobb? You know, how can I get rid of Cobb? Cobb was a was a philanthropist. He was one of the few ball players who made millions off of investments in Coca Cola. He didn't go gambling, although he did mention on the testimony he did bet in the nineteen nineteen World Series. 
um, when the, the White Sox um, played Cincinnati, he lost his bet because it even says it in his letter to uh, Leonard. And I try to tell Cobb's granddaughter this, Cindy Cobb, and she won't even have any of it. She's like, my grandfather never bet. Well, on the testimony, he said he did. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I try to convince Cobb's granddaughter, and she's, she, you know, she, you know, her, you know, him, and, and I tried to even convince Learson, and he went out. I said, I said, Charles, I got the transcripts for God's sake. He, it wasn't in your book. He made bets. There, he before Landis came, he bet, and nobody <laughs> wants to believe you, know, but it's right there. You know, well, Cobb's, he, Cobb's he, he right there. Who did he bet on? Uh, did, did, did well, say who he bet on? What the, was that? Did say which team he bet on during that series? Yeah, he, he, yeah, he bet he bet two games, games one and two. He bet on the uh, White Sox. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and he even he even admits it to to, to Landis on testimony. Um, but after Landis came to baseball, I also found proof that um, you know he would literally scourge. Uh, the, the saloons and the pool halls, and if he saw his players there, even associate, he's a getaway. You know, Landis is going to Landis is going to crack down on you. So I know prior uh, to um, you know to Landis coming, Land, you know, Carl probably bet not as many much as others. He wasn't interested in horses. He wasn't interested in stuff like that. He was a philanthropist. He he built hospitals and. And they have the, the Ty Cobb College Education, um, you know, trusts uh, for scholarships for people who are poor and stuff like that. And and, and libraries, you know, the Cobb uh, Library. So he wasn't really gambling. He did gamble on occasion. And uh, the question always comes to me, well, do you think he gambled um, that day? And I think he did, although it can't be proven that he that he gambled them. I think I think I believe Joe Wood's testimony, you know, forty years later, and the fact that under oath he said I did bet, I did bet on right. the you know, World Series. That's only a week later. So you put two and two together. Yeah, not hard to come up with the answer on that one. Exactly. You know, you 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 uh, figure that out. Uh, but Cobb was human. He wasn't this animal that's been portrayed. And I, you know, I have a web page on Facebook, Ty Cobb and the Dead Ball Era, and I got all Cobb's grandkids and great grandkids in there, and I got famous people uh, in there, uh, you know, grandchildren uh, from the Dead Ball players, and, and they all say you're doing a great thing here uh, by uh, teaching about the Dead Ball Era, and my book does really, you know, show Cobb in that light. Politicians liked him. I mean, he was drinking booze with the president of the United States, Warren Harding, when the prohibition <laughs> was in session. <laughs> I mean, that's how powerful Cobb was. You know, it's like the the president. You know, the president who who undertaken, you know, who had who who had a massive heart attack because he had a lot of problems. The Teapot Dome scandal uh, was happening, and uh, that was the biggest scandal since Watergate. So, fifty years in between, the whole U.S. government was on trial for trying to sell um, government oil uh, wells without permission to private uh, oil oil uh, men. And there was millions of dollars there, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and it all was under Warren Harding's uh, administration. Um, so, you know, I, you know, Cobb got, Cobb got uh, caught up uh, in the times as well, I think. Right. 
Well, you know, I always think about. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm ahead. sorry, Eric. Yeah, I was going to say this. And I just, as a player, I think about, you know, how I traveled. You know, they, they fly me somewhere. I'd, I'd get on a fancy, well, sometimes they weren't so fancy, but I'd get on a bus that had air and a bathroom at least, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I'd put on my polyester uniform, which is somewhat breathable. And, and I'd play on these fields that were fairly well manicured in a decent clubhouse. And I go back to my conditions, you know, in the worst stadium I played in were probably better than a lot of these guys in some of the major league stadiums back then. And, you know, what, what those guys had to deal with and endure with the lack of the money, you know, going on a train from, you know, one place to the next. And, you know, it just, that, that's all part of the fascination of, of this story to me. Um, and I can kind of put myself into a, a you know, a, a 1920s looking fedora and, and think about, would it be like to roll into the park that day and and play, you know, uh, under these circumstances? So I think that's also, you know, I think the, the nostalgic part of the setting to me is is also, you know, uh, part of the story, you know, because right, if, if these guys are making thirty million a year, nobody's going to rock the boat like right now. None of these these players are all angels, you know, they're all choir boys now for some reason. I know the reason; it's money. You know, and they're gonna they're gonna stay straight as long as they possibly can. Maybe they'll get crazy after, uh, like Lenny Dykstra, maybe. But but you know, you understand my point. You understand my point right. here is that 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 you know these guys have to survive. You know, like Ian said, you know, a lot of these guys had jobs in the off season. These are major league all stars who have to get a job in the off season to you know to to survive. So, um, Ian, I think this your story is this story is really good. Can you just tell the, uh, our listeners real quick before um, we, uh, we we tune out? But uh, what's the uh, what are some of the other books, and how can they sort of... Or Eric, did you have another question? I kind of jumped in front of you there. No, no, I was going to really say the same thing. How can people get older? So go ahead. Yeah, because I think there's... I think, obviously, this book is is very interesting. Uh, we want to make sure people know where to get it. And, of course, uh, our, our uh, Summer Game book publisher wants to make sure that you uh, we get plenty of shout-outs on that. Uh, make sure Walt gets gets uh, the, the word out there. And then... Um, and then, yeah, and then some of the other books maybe that you've written that uh, you can also kind of inform people on. Okay. Well, you can buy it at Amazon.com, obviously. You can go to Summer Game Books. Um, you can go to my uh, webpage, which is Summer Game Books and backslash Ian Kahanowitz. I, put, I have my blog there, and every day I write something new, and uh, I get between 200 and 600 hits a day on it um, to, do, to the site. So you can go there. Um, you can go, you can call me, or you can email me at ikahanowitz, that's K-A-H-A-N-O-W-I-T-Z at msn.com, and I'll send you a, uh, a signed copy uh, of it. And um, one of the things, um, I got three books, four books coming out within the next three years. Uh, the next one will be Collusion, um, again, that took place in the 1980s on the Peter Uberoth, be good to my grandpa for that one, please. Okay. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Campanis, let me tell you, when he said that stuff on Nightline, you know, uh, I mean, he was in on the collusion. Uh, I know, and he told us uh, all. He told me and my dad all about it, and uh, so it, it, that'll be interesting. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, hear that story because we talk about it a lot on our our show, Eric and I. Um, you know, because we're talking the way free agency is going nowadays, we think it's yeah. happening again. Yeah. Well, 
the, the manuscripts are done. It's going to be in two volumes. The first volume's from 1976 to 1985 until Collusion 1. And then the second volume is going to be from uh, 1986 until 1994 until uh, Sonia Sotomayor finished and ruled against the uh, owners and the longest strike uh, ended with the end of collusion. Um, the 1990 lockout uh, was a direct result of collusion. The creation of the four teams, uh, the Diamondbacks, uh, the Tampa Bay at the time, Devil Rays, um, you know, uh, the other two teams, the Marlins, and I'm forgetting the Rockies. All those four teams were created against Faye Vincent's, um, you know, against Faye Vincent's will because they all had to pay an entrance fee. And those entrance fees paid the $280 million that the arbitrators threw at the owners uh, for, mm. of, for all the back pay they had to do. So, so it was free. Yeah, so pretty much. <laughs> Bud Selig was able, and uh, Reinsdorf, both, uh, both of those guys I can't stand. Either one of them should be in the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, and so collusion's coming out. I got a football book that I'm going to do myself, um, publishing itself, publishing. Uh, that's going to come out uh, next August to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the merging of the AFL and NFL. And after Collusion 2 comes out, I'm currently in the middle of writing about the Dolan O'Connell scandal uh, in 1924 when they tried to bribe the Philadelphia Phillies so they could win the pennant over the Dodgers, which they ended up doing, and they played the Senators in the 1924 World Series. Uh, so that's going to be a uh, good book, too, and that should be out eh, probably by 2022 if Walt, gets right. move, if, if, if Walt gets moving on it. <laughs> yeah, it took me a minute to get my book, uh, the final editing done, and I thought I was done when I gave it to him. But you know, it was kind of great. Where I mean, that's one of the reasons I like working with Walt was, you know, just another set of eyes and you know, move this paragraph around a little. And he never made any edits on mine. It was just more of uh, suggestions, which I wanted. I needed a first-time author, so uh, I know how much work goes into it and uh, how much time it takes, and the tours and the phone and you know these types of podcasts. Uh, you know, getting the word out, and certainly um, I will be putting that up on our, uh, you know, on our little podcast uh, description for this. And uh, so, Ian, thanks so much for your time. Um, Eric, do you have anything, any uh, closing uh, comments or uh, questions for uh, Ian? Uh, no, we covered it all. I, I just wanted to make sure people knew how to find his blog and, and hear what he's doing in the future. So, Ian, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, guys, it was an honor. Both of you are great at what you do. I've listened to your shows, you know. I retired as a podcaster because the the whole Comfortably Zone network was rescheduled. So I'm looking to pick up my own podcast, but in the meantime, I continue to write. <laughs> yeah, keep it up. <laughs> so, awesome. Well, well, gentlemen, you have a good evening, and thanks for being on the show. And uh, if you want me on the show again, you let me know. We will, and we definitely want to hear about those upcoming books, so we'll be in touch for sure. All right. Take care, gentlemen. Good night. All right. All right, Eric. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, you know what ran through my mind while we were talking with him was uh, the shows that we've had, if you think about it, we had Marjorie Adams on a few weeks ago, Doc Adams' granddaughter. And, you know, can you imagine Doc Adams and all that he did, his influence on baseball? He had a Crystal Paul who could have looked ahead into the future as 
far as the 20 and 30 and seeing what was coming, uh, how he would have reacted. And maybe, I don't know if there was anything he could have put into place back then to discourage gambling and, and all that. But it's just fascinating that we've had such a wide range of people yeah. as discussed on the show. But, you know, I think it does go back to, you know, and, and, and it, it makes it makes perfect sense where, and, you know, let's put, you and I play ball, uh, Eric, and let's put ourselves back into our 20-year-old bodies. And right. all of a sudden we, we look into the stands. I mean, I, I did this at, and even in college, and I'm like, these people are here to see me, and uh, I mean, although I am getting a scholarship, and that is definitely where at the time I was, I wouldn't even consider, you know, college players should have, you know, getting paid. But now, you know, the money that these football teams drive, you know, I got to believe it, it's it's time because the we're, we're, we're that's why the the quarterback, what's his name, like stole stole shrimp or you know what was it, crab legs from a grocery store, Jameson, whatever, Winston. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, you know these court. I mean, hey, I'm not. I'm not. You know, uh, you know. The, the, let's just face it. If that guy was getting paid to play football, or or had endorsements, he would be buying those crab legs. You know what I mean? Right. And and right. I and I'm not. And I'm not condoning that at all. But you know, there's also the 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 athletic the athlete's mentality. Like you know, we're we know how to get stuff done, sort of thing. Or and and we play to win. And sometimes guys go over the line. I'm not saying that that's good. But if you give, if you have a dollar in my pocket, I'm probably going to do the right thing, you know, because yeah. there's a lot of discipline that gets that, that guys, you know, to get to this level, to get to the, the highest levels of athleticism, you know, you have to have had discipline along with talent. Right. So well, I, know, I'm kind I of on a. You mentioned well, back when you and I played uh, in college, I can distinctly remember, you know, walking down the street and maybe finding a dollar on the ground and being overjoyed. It just, you don't have time to work, you don't have any money. If you don't come from a wealthy family, times are very tight. And I don't know if you heard this just the other day. There was a ruling in California. I can't remember what court it was, but they are going to try and athletes to get paid. It's going to be controversial because the NCAA says, well, if you do that, then they're not going to qualify for uh, this and that and the other. But, uh, yeah, in this case, though, the, the specifically, it's not a pay-to-play. It's a pay to a. You're allowed to be paid as an endorser. So, so okay, for yeah, example, well. so for example, if you're the quarterback, you know, then then the the the, the Lexus dealer is going to want you to be like, hey, come on out to you know Lexus of Calabasas and buy this, you know, whatever. Um, right. Like, so they they could get paid as like that kind of endorser, but not be paid um, as a as a quote salary. So this would be like extracurricular income that you leverage as an athlete. And, and that's where it's different than what is going on around outside of California, where they're looking at it as more like a, you know, a salary a job, you know, with yeah, benefits, see, like, like an employee-based job. I have a little bit of an issue with it in that case because uh, let's say there's 22 guys on the college baseball team. Not all 22 are going to get endorsement deals. Now, so, I mean, it's got to be fair. It's gotta be pro- if someone's going to get paid, they should all get paid. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, and, and that's and that's where that's where this rule differs from the legislation that 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 is being presented to the NCA as a whole, where you know, like I think it's more like everybody has the same job. Um, I'm not sure how they would break it up with uh, if it's based on your your sport. You know, maybe major you know sports guys, you know, football and basketball get paid more. I, 
I don't know how they would do this, uh, the structure of it. But in in the case of what they're proposing in California, it, you know, although it's 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 very uh, um, disinclusive, if that's even a word, we'll Google it later. Um, hey, even though it's not, it's not okay, it's not including everybody on the team. Um, it's at least giving like the Jameson Wilson example or Winston example I gave earlier. Here's given. Here's this. Here's like you know the player on that team, the guy who you know could be making money. And you know, let's face it, you're a 21 year old kid, and and you're you're you just signed a you know 180 grand deal for you know a Nike commercial. You're not going to hook up your boys with you know something pizza. Or, I mean, you're going to at least be I would think generous at some level with it with you know. So uh, yeah, and I, I'm not saying you know. Oh, uh, so, yeah. But my, I guess what I'm just getting at is I, I still think that that is, to me, it warrants, you know, there wouldn't have been the Reggie Bush scandal. And I keep going back to, I mean, USC, this this has plagued USC since uh, in the beginning of time, you know, since John Wayne went there. And, you know, these kids were getting endorsements. These guys are stars. These guys, these guys Rodney P was my one of my good friends, played on my baseball team. And he had to change his phone number like five times. Like, I see him at practice. I'm like, dude, I was trying to call you for this party. He's like, yeah, I had to change my number again because, like, he was getting pounded with everybody wanting a piece of him, you know. Yeah. And th- yeah. Th- don't tell me that that's changed. And so, you know, you're an NCAA, uh, you know, you're a Division One quarterback at a big program, and you are good, and you're good looking. You know, why shouldn't you, you know, be able to capitalize on that for that moment in time? I, I just think that that's fair. Well, I do, and let me just point out what you said. Let me pick what you said. Very carefully, you said at that moment in time, they don't know how many moments they have left. That's uh, my the, point. The lifespan of an athlete is very short, as you know, and uh, you got to get it while you can, while you got that's it. That's right. That's right. And I think that's what you know of these guys, these the Taikov, you know, story. You know, we we talked about today. See me bringing it back around. The Taikov thing we were talking <laughs> yeah. about, like, like <laughs> so. Here, here's really. I mean, think about it. These guys wouldn't need to even think about devious ways, you know, um, to, about their baseball play if they were getting paid. They just go out and win, and the other guys, the other team, were like, wait, we can't mess up this thing. This is, you know, we're we're we're, we're getting paid to do what we want to do and love to do. Right. And and now now that was now you know, but you can understand the dissentment and the bitterness that these players must have had while they watched their owners, you know, drive away with you know. Um, you know, in these fancy cars, and go to these, and have lived in these mansions, and and they're all scraping. You know, okay, let me ask you a quick question. This is nineteen. What's what was the year? My dad was with the Pirates, so I want to say it was like nineteen seventy-one or seventy. Well, seventy-one, seventy-two. It, 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 one of those years, he was traded to them, and then they said, "Hey, we don't want you to go to winter ball, um, and we'll pay you uh, a bonus to not go to winter ball." And my dad would make in winter ball what he would make in a major league season. That's how much yeah. money they paid him in winter ball. So what do you think that amount was? And this is 1971. What the, it, it was the major league minimum salary. Major league minimum salary for an entire season. Uh, 28,000? No, no, 22,000? 10,5. Oh, my gosh. So my dad wow. would make my dad would make a minor league salary most of a year, and then he'd be called up to the big leagues a little. And then he'd go play winter ball, where he pay, he got paid 2500 a month, played four months down there. So that was in cash, tax-free. Don't tell the IRS. Maybe there's still a, a statute of limitations on that. Anyway, but they, they that, pay that, room and board and everything? 
Yeah, they, they, he stayed in the nicest hotel in town, and um, he, I think I think they hooked him up for yeah with, with food as well. And and I, my mom and, and family, we we'd go down there and see him for you know weeks at a time, and then come back home and go back to school. But you know that's how players even in the seventies uh, had to survive because they weren't getting paid. I mean, I remember Steve Garvey had this gargantuan contract that my grandpa wouldn't sign, and so he ended up being a free agent and. And everybody hated my grandpa for trading. So I'm like, he never traded him. He, he just didn't sign him. He, he, he was a free agent. He would have signed That's him right. if he went. And it was like a $1.2 million deal. <laughs> 1.2. Right? I mean, think about that nowadays. Like, like you know, everybody's making 1.2. You know, it's like, that, was it's like I think, 10 or, that was only like 10 years after your dad had to play winter ball. Right. Right. And I remember Pedro Guerrero, last time I saw him, he, was, he always says every time I see him, oh, I, love, I love your grandpa. He, he gave me my contract. And I looked it up, and it was like it was like a long term deal for like four million or something, and which is a lot of money back then, right? But I mean now it's like, well, that's what guys are making in in one year, you know, not yeah. four years, you know. So I mean, just the the difference now, and we see this, I think, in in how clean these players are, and uh, you know, I'm sure you know we we see them as choir boys, like I said earlier, but I'm sure there's some devious people with you know people that just like the guys that, that Ian talked about today on the show, yeah. baseball players. Uh, but they're all seeming to keep their nose pretty clean uh, because of all the money that's, that's at stake, you know. And so, well, I, I see uh, that younger players, especially, are not only that, not only avoiding gambling and avoiding situations like that, but they're taking better care of themselves and training yeah. better than ever in history. Um, I don't know. I had, briefly, I don't know if you saw the. Uh, I think it was Sports Illustrated did a show about Hunter Pence. Did you see that about him playing winter ball this year? Uh, he went down to I think it was Venezuela. Uh, to change his swing and work himself back in shape so that he could get, basically, so he could get a job. And Texas ended up signing him. It was really a very impressive documentary. It's like 20 or 30 minutes long. It's on YouTube. On what? I want to check that out tonight. What, what was it? 100 Pence. Just type yeah, in yeah. What, Pence Winter what, Ball. What, what, what channel? I, it's on YouTube. I think it was either Sports Illustrated oh, on YouTube. or Time. Yeah. Okay. It's on YouTube. Okay. It's very impressive. You'll see... Uh, they spend the whole time down there with him, and you know he's very honest. I don't know if you ever met Hunter, but he's an honest guy. He's, you know, no old barbs, and uh, it, it was very emotional sometimes to watch this thing. But uh, boy, I'll check it out for sure. Yeah, I'll check it out for sure. Absolutely. So, now that's great, Eric, and, and I think that's one of the fun things about you and I when we get together. We always sort of, oh, have you heard this or have you seen that? And no, oh no, yeah, I gotta yeah. check that out. So uh, thanks, thanks again for, as always, uh, joining me on this little fun uh, escapade. And uh, I did make it home today. Um, actually, I, I made it home pretty pretty quick. Uh, I don't know why, but, you know, for whatever reason, the LA traffic was a little light today. So I've been sitting in front of my house for the last 10 minutes or so. And uh, oh, wow. so it's uh, been kind of nice just uh, chilling here, enjoying uh, this conversation with uh, with Ian, and please uh, give a quick, more a quick description, and we'll close out the the, the show here after. Oh, by the way, uh, give everybody your um, your four one one. Yes, and you know, hold on me. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Eric Menneberg, uh, and on Twitter at Eric Menneberg or Doctor Dr. Capital Dr. of Baseball. Uh, please feel free to send messages. I had a uh, suggestion from a listener who wanted to see if we could get Jim Morris on the show. And I wanted to bring this up, uh, Campy, because I uh, reached out to Jim. Uh, for those of you who don't remember the name, Jim Morris was the rookie, if you saw the movie with Dennis Quaid. True story about a 38-year-old 
high school teacher in a small town in Texas who was able to make it back to the major league. Uh, you know, it's an amazing, very inspirational story, and Jim will be joining us. I uh, don't have the date yet, but uh, his people, I've spoken to his people, and he'll be joining us on the podcast. Uh, we also have Perry Barber, for those of you who don't know Perry, she was a, a uh, umpire, very well-respected umpire. And I found out recently, uh, Jim, she was also in the music industry, and she opened a show through Springsteen, things like that. I, I can't wait to hear that. Oh, very I met, cool. I don't know if you ever you know, met Perry. I've met her once, but I didn't know all the, the music stuff. Well, I want to I want to Google her her where where she was umping because you know I was a catcher, and I had I had a I had a woman umpire umpire me at an ASU game, and it was during spring training and they were having major league or you know minor league umps coming out uh, before spring training to to practice, so we had uh we, I had her behind the plate I had a woman umpire I don't know who it was, so I want to double check the, was her, the yeah. dates. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google uh, well, you know, her career and see if it coincided because uh, baseball is a really small world in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> it's amazing. So, uh, I ran into somebody over, you know, just out of the blue, I ran into someone and they happen to have a baseball connection, and sure enough, they'll know you or they'll know uh, uh, Jeff Cirillo or you know they'll know Bobby Wells. Somebody, there's some kind of connection. It's almost like the six degrees of separation thing. It, it really is, and um, and the other part to it is, you know, we're uh, this baseball tribe of us. We're all pretty, pretty talkative, pretty friendly, and uh, and and very passionate about the game. And so that's right. Uh, you know, that's that's all. I think part of the the sort of brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, that we sort of have, you know, in the in this sport. And you know, we talk about a lot of old stuff like we did today, but you know, I I think we still need to, you know, uh, talk about how to keep this game going because uh, we got to keep keep making sure that the funnel is being filled with young fans out there. So, you know, yes. uh, that's, that's one of my, uh, my passions as well is, you know, how can we, I train these young kids, but every, every kid that I train, like I, I make them watch baseball. I, I go, you've got to watch games, man. Everything I'm telling you, you can watch these guys do it like right in the middle of a game. So it's like a homework assignment, you know, but what I'm really right. doing is I'm, is I'm tricking them into loving it. You know what I'm saying? And like making them want to, like teach their kids how to play baseball and watch baseball and perpetuate this great sport that uh, we all love. And, and uh, Yeah, and it's a tradition we have to continue. It's like a responsibility, I feel. That's right, exactly. So, all right, Eric, well, we're looking forward to future shows here. This one was a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, soon we will be um, uh, doing another uh, episode here of Driving Them In with Jim Campanis and Eric Lennonberg. Uh, until the next time, thanks for joining us. Happy Christmas, everyone. Thank you.